Welcome to Module 2 of Canadian Administrative Law. My name is Craig Forces, and I'm a professor of law at the University of Ottawa. In the first module, we asked, what is administrative law? We said that, in short, administrative law deals with the legal limitations on the actions of government officials and on the remedies which are available to anyone affected by a transgression of these limits. And remember, I argued that administrative law was really the law of government accountability. And it was about people who have differing agendas to be advanced or defeated in the application of administrative law principles. Now, you may be asking, well, isn't that true of other areas of public law, like constitutional law? And you'd be right. Administrative and constitutional law are close cousins. Both of them respond to what I call the public law mantra. What I wish to do in this module is to introduce you to this public law mantra and analyze the relationship between administrative law and constitutional law through a hypothetical and then through an actual case. Let me begin with the hypothetical. It's a dog walking hypothetical. There's a municipal park near my house, a doggy park, full of dogs of all sizes. Let's assume one day I'm waiting for the bus next to the park, and I see a dog running free without a lead, and the local bylaw has not designated this park as an off-leash park. Let me give you four alternate scenarios. Scenario one. Outraged, I, Craig Forces, demand that the dog be kept on the leash. What do you, the dog owner, respond? Well, you would likely say, who are you? And you would question my authority to enforce the municipal bylaw. What do you say to me? You say to me, show me the power. And I can't, because I'm just some over-enthusiastic citizen standing at the bus stop. I'm not a member of the executive branch of the state, and I'm not exercising any power delegated to me by a statute. I have no administrative law authority. Scenario number two. This time, I'm a municipal bylaw enforcement officer, and I, the bylaw officer, demand that the dog be kept on a leash or you'll be ticketed. How do you, the dog owner, respond? Well, wow, maybe you're a little bit more wary. But again, you say, show me the power, and I show you the leash bylaw and my municipal bylaw enforcement officer badge. And you've been through a year or two of law school, so you're not fully persuaded. So you say, show me the power again. Where does the bylaw come from? Well, it was duly made by the municipal council of the city of Ottawa. Not good enough, you say. Show me the power, municipality. How is it that you can make a bylaw? So where does the municipality get its power? While the municipality is a creature created by the provincial legislature, in this case, the Ontario legislature enacted the City of Ottawa Act, and it also enacted the Municipal Act 2001. And these and other statutes give the city the power to make park bylaws, among other things. So we are still talking about administrative law. The municipality passing a bylaw is exercising delegated power. It is really an executive body, not a true parliament or legislative body with inherent powers. So the show me the power mantra is still about administrative law at this point. Well, okay, you say. Show me the power, Ontario legislature. 
how is it that you have the power to give the city the power, to give the municipal bylaw officer the power to tell you to put the dog on its leash? Well, now, the mantra produces a constitutional answer. The Ontario legislature enjoys parliamentary supremacy. That is, the power to make any law it wishes, albeit as constrained by the division of powers in the Constitution Act of 1867 and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and other provisions in the Constitution Act of 1982. So at this point, you have exhausted the show-me-the-power public law mantra. Here, I, the bylaw enforcement officer, am a member of the executive branch of the state, and I am exercising power delegated to me by a statute, and the statute is constitutional. So maybe you'll put the dog on the lead. You're much more receptive here as a good citizen. Scenario number three. Well, I'm still that municipal bylaw enforcement officer, and I insist that you should now leave the park, even though your dog is on the lead. Humph, you say, show me the power. Well, it turns out we are in the middle of COVID-19 and the park is closed under an emergency order issued by the Lieutenant Governor and Council. And for those who don't know, Lieutenant Governor and Council is shorthand for the Provincial Cabinet. And that order is issued under the Ontario Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. And that order gives municipal bylaw officers enforcement powers. So again... I, the enforcement officer, am on solid legal footing when challenged with the public law mantra, show me the power. And I ticket you $750 when you refuse to move along, as the order and the act permit me to do. Here again, I am a member of the executive branch of the state, and I am exercising power delegated to me by an order created by the Lieutenant Governor and Council, and I look to see if the Lieutenant Governor and Council has the power because of a provincial statute, and I find that under the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act, the legislature has, in fact, delegated substantial power to the Lieutenant Governor and Council in an emergency, including the power to make measures as the Lieutenant Governor and Council considers necessary in order to prevent, respond, or alleviate the effects of an emergency. And so, from an administrative law perspective, you are probably out of luck in declaiming show me the power. And then going up from there, from the administrative questions to the constitutional law questions, to the constitutional show me the power, the provincial legislature does have the power to enact the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act under Section 92 of the Constitution Act of 1867, probably because of its reference to provincial legislative jurisdiction over all matters of a merely local or private nature in the province. Scenario number four. This time, not only am I a bylaw enforcement officer, I'm also a frustrated police academy dropout who wanted to be a member of a SWAT team. And I've got SWAT envy. So I, the municipal bylaw enforcement officer, throw you to the ground and search you for drugs just to see if you're in violation of what I tell you is the Ontario Municipal Narcotics Act, which bans certain sorts of drugs. What do you say? At this point, very frustrated, you say again, with considerable exasperation, show me the power. And can I show you the power? Hmm. Well, here's where the wheels fall off. I'm still a member of the executive branch of the state. That hasn't changed. But am I really 
properly exercising a power delegated to me by a statute. Not a chance. First, there probably isn't a Municipal Narcotics Act. After all, under the Constitutional Division of Powers, criminal law is within the federal parliament's purview, not the provincial legislature. And so if the Ontario legislature had enacted the Municipal Narcotics Act, it would be unconstitutional because, as the expression goes, it is ultra vires, or outside of the jurisdiction of the province. And so show me the power, in this case, produces a constitutional answer under the federalism rules in the Constitution Act of 1867. And more than that, even if we didn't have a federalism problem, and even if there was such an act, and even if I, the bylaw enforcement officer, was following that act to the letter, there are probably Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms problems. Specifically, a warrantless search in violation of Section 8 of the Charter, guarding against unreasonable searches and seizures. So again, the show-me-the-power mantra produces a constitutional problem. So what's the pattern we see here in my four scenarios? In scenario number one, I have no power because I'm a private citizen with no statutory authorization. In scenario number two, the bylaw enforcement officer likely has the power by virtue of a city bylaw, and the city has the power because of a provincial statute, and the provincial legislature has the power because of the Constitution. Likewise, in scenario number three, the bylaw enforcement officer likely has the power by virtue of a lieutenant governor and council order in council, and the lieutenant governor and council has the power because of a provincial statute, and the provincial legislature has the power because of the Constitution. But then, in scenario number four, the bylaw enforcement officer is probably on a lark. That bylaw enforcement officer probably doesn't have power by virtue of a bylaw. There probably isn't any bylaw authorized by a supposed Municipal Narcotics Act, let alone a Municipal Narcotics Act at all. So if I were the SWAT envying bylaw enforcement officer, I would be acting without jurisdiction, or again, ultra vires. And if there were a provincial law that authorized my action, well, criminal law in relation to drugs is clearly a federal power. So the province would be ultra vires, the constitution, were it to enact a Municipal Narcotics Act. And even if it wasn't a violation of the Division of Powers, the bylaw enforcement officer's conduct spontaneous searches of dog walkers through a supposed Municipal Narcotics Act, that would be in violation of the Charter. In each of these scenarios, where do you go for relief if you don't like the answer to the show-me-the-power mantra? Well, to the courts. But let me give you a real-life example. This is a very famous case that illustrates the show-me-the-power mantra, albeit it wasn't truly a public law case, it was a tort case. The case is called Roncarelli versus Duplessis. So background. Maurice Duplessis was a premier of Quebec from 1936 until 1959, with a brief interlude in there after the election of 1939. He pursued a staunchly conservative stand in social and economic affairs, and many, including a young Pierre Trudeau, believed his regime a disgrace. Duplessis was regarded as corrupt and accused of selling the resources of the province to the highest bidder. Some labeled his years in power les années noires. One of Duplessis' finest and firmest critics was a lawyer, 
McGill law professor and renowned poet by the name of Frank Scott. Now, in the late 1940s, Scott was hired by Frank Roncarelli, a Montreal restaurateur. You see, Premier Duplessis had a thing about Jehovah Witnesses, and not only was Duplessis the premier, he was also Quebec's attorney general. Quebec police kept arresting Jehovah Witnesses for proselytizing, often under municipal bylaws banning unlicensed distribution of documents. Effectively, they were arrested for illegal propaganda. The persecution of the Jehovah Witnesses in Quebec reached such proportions that one journalist, Leslie Roberts, compared it to the Inquisition. And so, how did Frank Scott's client, Frank Roncarelli, come into the mix? Well, Roncarelli kept covering the bail of Jehovah Witnesses. In fact, by 1946, he had made about 400 bail payments, and Premier Duplessis didn't much like this. Now, as noted, Roncarelli ran a restaurant, one that he had inherited from his parents, and that had been in business for well over three decades. So when Duplessis was informed of this fact by the liquor commissioner in 1946, the premier told that commissioner, Edward Archambault, to cancel Roncarelli's alcohol permit. And during lunch hour on December 4th, 1946, the police descended on Roncarelli's establishment, confiscating all the alcohol, including, it is said, that being imbibed by the many patrons on the premises. When contacted by the press about the events of that afternoon, Duplessis said, and I'll give a paraphrased translation, a certain Frank Roncarelli gave security for the witnesses of Jehovah in several hundred cases. The sympathy this man shows towards witnesses of Jehovah in such a clear, repeated, and audacious manner constitutes a provocation of public order, of the administration of justice in the province, and is absolutely contrary to the ends of justice. Today, the same Mr. Roncarelli is identifying with the harmful and odious propaganda of the witnesses of Jehovah. Accordingly, as Attorney General and Premier, I have issued an order to cancel the license granted by the Liquor Commission to the restaurant operated by that man at 1429 Crescent Street in Montreal. Communists, Nazis, and all those who are promoting the seditious campaign of the witnesses of Jehovah will receive their just due. Under the government of the Union Nationale, there is not and cannot be any compromise with these people. Well, Ron Corrali wasn't about to go down without a fight, and so he sued Duplessis. And at issue was nothing less than the rule of law. Mr. Ron Corrali lost his liquor license, not because he had violated any law relating to liquor, but because he had run afoul of Quebec's most powerful government official. And Ron Corelli fought back, and Frank Scott went to court and said, Show me the power. After all, who is this Duplessis character? He has no God-given powers. He is no sovereign. He is not above the law. He is subject to the law and can only do the law's bidding. And yet, using the power of the state, Duplessis destroyed a man. And make no mistake, Ron Corelli was hurt. He was a pariah. His restaurant went bankrupt. No one would employ him. And to feed his family, he took occasional construction jobs. So what happened? Ron Corelli won at trial, although he received modest damages, about $8,000. At trial, Duplessis observed, in my opinion, a man like Ron Corelli was not worthy of holding a privilege from the province. And he stated of his relationship with Archambault, when a superior officer gives an order, an inferior officer obeys. 
But then Ron Corelli lost at the appeal court. And eventually in 1958, after 12 years, the case reached the Supreme Court of Canada. And at the Supreme Court hearing, the judges asked Duplessis' lawyer, Emery Beaulieu, why Ron Corelli's license had been revoked. And Beaulieu responded that it was an effort to cut Ron Corelli's credit. That's to say, to undermine his financial circumstances so that he could not pay bail. Well, that's since the case. And at the end of the day, the court was satisfied that the evidence showed that, one, the license was cancelled because Mr. Ron Corelli was perceived as disrupting the judicial system by posting bail for Jehovah Witnesses. Two, the cancellation was made on the express order of Mr. Duplessis. And three, the license would not have been cancelled by the Liquor Commission without that order. Bottom line, the majority of the court found that Mr. Duplessis had acted without statutory authorization. He had no power. You're right, Mr. Scott. And Justice Rand, concurring, wrote that in the presence of expanding administrative regulation of economic activities, such a step and its consequences are to be suffered by the victim without recourse or remedy, that an administration according to law is to be superseded by action dictated by and according to the arbitrary likes, dislikes, and irrelevant purposes of public officers acting beyond their duty would signalize the beginning of disintegration of the rule of law as a fundamental postulate of our constitutional structure. In other words, if a person exercising delegated power were to exercise that power improperly, this would strike a blow to this fundamental postulate of our constitutional order, the rule of law. If you act without the power, member of the executive branch, you act contrary to the rule of law. And then the majority of the Supreme Court, relying on this notion of the rule of law, awarded damages to Mr. Ron Corelli, about 33000 plus about $8,000 in costs, which is modest in modern terms, but in the 1950s would be more than it appears to be at this time. Frank Scott later summarized the two basic constitutional postulates that underlie our entire constitutional order in which are ground zero for understanding administrative law. The first is that the individual may do anything they please in any circumstance anywhere unless there is some provision of law prohibiting them. Freedom is thus presumed and is the general rule. All restrictions are exceptions. The second rule defines the authority of the state and places the public official, including the police, in exactly the opposite situation from the private individual. A public officer can do nothing in their public capacity unless the law permits it. Their incapacity is presumed, and authority to act is an exception. So what really is the public law mantra? Show me the power. What is it really about? It is about the rule of law in a liberal democratic state, where the state is a creature of the law and not above it. And much of the work defending that rule of law in a liberal democratic state is not done at the constitutional law level. Constitutional cases are relatively uncommon, even though law school makes you think they are everyday occurrences. Instead, much of the busy work of defending the rule of law against encroachment by the state is done in the subject matter of this course, administrative law. And that is what makes administrative law so powerful, so important, and yes, so exciting. So how did we end up with a system like this? Well, in the next module, we'll embark on a little historical overview, fleshing out some of the more theoretical issues we've addressed so far. This ends Module 2.